Hi, Chris Valentin here. Welcome to my podcast, where I hope to inspire you to walk in your royal identity in Christ and experience God's goodness in every area of your life. I hope you enjoy this message today. And if you're looking for more resources, check out chrisvalentin.com. And uh, Lord, I just thank you today for what you're doing all over the world. And I thank you that you are rising in the darkness. You are the light in the midst of the darkness. You're not the you are not the light at the end of the tunnel. You're the light in the tunnel. You prepare a table for us in the presence of our enemies. You anoint our head with oil. Lord, you're the rod and the staff that comfort us in the middle of the valley, the shadow of death, or whatever it is we're going through. And Lord, I just bless this day. I bless this time. And I pray that you would awaken something powerful in us, Lord that you would awaken something powerful in us today, that you would awaken the greatness in each of us, that you would awaken the leader in us, that you would awaken the lion in us today, God. And I, I pray for that, and I thank you for it in Jesus' name. I want to talk about discipling nations and building in troubled times, and I want to actually read, we're going to read a lot today out of the book of Nehemiah. So, if you, uh, if you have a Bible near, if you could scramble and go get your Bible, because it's probably some of the most reading we'll do <laughs> if, you, uh, if you're with us today. Nehemiah is a story of the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Help me. Okay, there we go. I got a little cheering section in here. And, uh, and the walls of Jerusalem and the gates of Jerusalem were torn down for 114 years, as I shared with you before. And then uh, for 72 years, the Israelites tried to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Now, when we're talking about walls, Isaiah 60 says, you'll call your wall salvation, (coughs) sorry, and you'll call your gates praise. And so we see these as physical walls, but they're also representative of the walls of our life. Your walls, salvation, your gates are praise. And I I, want to talk a little bit about discipling nations from the book of Nehemiah, and he's, he, I love Nehemiah, he's one of my very favorite characters in the whole Bible. He's actually a cupbearer to a king, and as you probably remember, Nehemiah that was sent by the king as a cupbearer, he was sent by the king to Jerusalem. He actually uh, serves King Azusis, and uh, some say the same king at the same time as Esther served and so he, he ends up uh, praying in chapter 1. We'll just uh, talk about that for a few minutes. Let's uh, go to verse 4. When I heard, oh, verse 3. He, his brothers have come to him, and he's asking them about the condition of the city. And they said to me, the remnant there in the providence who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I beseech you, O God of heaven, the great and awesome God who who, uh, preserves the covenant and the loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before uh, before you. Day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, your servants, confessing the sins of Israel, which we have sinned 
against you. I and my father's house have sinned. Um, uh, I, I want to talk, first of all, about discipling of nations from the spiritual aspect of discipling nations. When Nehemiah hears about the condition, <laughs> when he hears about the condition of the city, of his nation, the first thing he does is he begins to fast and pray. He begins to seek the Lord. Like, what are the real root issues of the broken down walls of our city? And it's, it's interesting to me that Nehemiah attaches the broken city, the walls of the city being broken down. Practical things, the walls broken down, the gates are burned with fire. He connects those broken walls and those destroyed gates with the sin of their forefathers. Now, I understand that this is Old Testament. This is an Old Testament example, and Jesus died on the cross and he forgave our sins. I, I, I totally understand that, but I want to pull a principle in here that sometimes physical manifestations actually have spiritual root, roots. And the first thing that he did is what we call identificational repentance. He steps in and he begins to confess the sins of his forefathers of which he did not sin. Of which he did not sin, but he confessed them as though they were his own. This is, um, I think, really powerful. Um, and I think that there's a lot of New Testament theology around this from the standpoint of some people feel like this is like uh, unnecessary in the new covenant. And yet, 1 John says, chapter 1 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, isn't it interesting that although Jesus died for our sin, there was still the necessity of confession. And I think that there is a, there's something about the confession of generational sin that helps to break that sin in the next generation, uh, keeping that sin from the next generation. I think, about the, I think about the effects of the Native Americans as a great, great example. Uh, I've, been, I've been in three different situations or services where we specifically uh, asked God to forgive us and asked the Native Americans who were present to forgive us for our forefathers' sin. Now, let me be clear. I've never had a problem with a Native American and Indian. I've never personally behaved in a way that I had felt any, any conviction for. I felt like I have honored the Native American people. But the fact is, and my father was not involved in the eradication of the Native Americans, the Indians. My grandfather wasn't. But somewhere back in our archives, the white man persecuted and annihilated the Native American. Was the Native American completely innocent? That's not the point, right? The point is, is that I can't confess their sins for them. I can only confess my father's sins for us. And there's something about the forgiveness of sin that lays a foundation, if you will, for the rebuilding of the walls, I say the same things happen with the, with the African-American. I mean, just every people group that's been oppressed, there is, I didn't, I didn't, I've never had a slave. I, I grew up with African-Americans in, in the Bay Area. I was, I was raised to be colorblind from, this, from that standpoint. But my forefathers and my, and my, my great-grandfather and his grandfather and, and, and white people way back, I mean, not very far back, really, oppressed, had prejudice and hatred 
only because somebody of someone's skin. And, and what I'm getting at is that Nehemiah takes the sins of his forefathers, which I don't know what they were in this book, but whatever they were, and he begins to confess those sins as if they were, as if they were his own. And it's called identification repentance. And what he's doing is he's laying a foundation in the spirit for there to be, if you will, a place of humility for the wind of God to be behind me instead of against me. How many know God's opposed to the proud? You know, this is a powerful statement, really, and this is mentioned four times in the New Testament alone. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Did you hear that? God is literally opposed to the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. We've been teaching here for years that you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation, you're a child of the king, you're no longer a sinner, you are a saint. How many know all of that's true, but God's still opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble? My sonship does not give me the right to be arrogant. My inheritance does not give me the right to demand things from other people or from God. How many know there's this fine line between inheritance and entitlement? And that fine line is an attitude. Let me say that again. The fine line between inheritance and entitlement is an attitude. How many know nobody owes me anything? I am not a victim as a Christian. I may have been a victim. Let me say it this way. I may have been victimized, but I am not to remain a victim as I am more than a conqueror. But the truth is, I still have to find humility. Humility plus nothing equals promotion. Let me say that again. (laughs) I may not be the smartest person. I may not be educated. I may not be talented. I maybe can't sing. I can't dance. I can't can't preach. I, I, I may not be great at anything. But if I humble myself, I will be exalted. Now, let me tell you, it's great to have an education. It's great to have an education. It's wonderful to be talented. And I believe that God gives everybody at least one talent. I, I think it's wonderful to pour yourself into something. It's wonderful to be beautiful. It's wonderful to be a dancer. It's wonderful to be a singer. Whatever talent you have, it's wonderful. But let me say, you can have none of that. And if you humble yourself, you will still be exalted. That, to me, that's amazing. How do I get to my destiny? Listen, I'm not exactly sure what the structure is, but let me say this. The attitude is, if you humble yourself, you'll still be exalted. And Nehemiah shifts the wind of the Spirit in his favor by humbling himself and praying, God, forgive us. Not, God, forgive our forefathers for their sins. You know, they did some bad stuff. We're innocent. No, forgive us for our sins. For we and our forefathers have sinned against you. And Nehemiah ties the inability to rebuild walls for 72 years, or 114 years, but 72 years of effort, to the fact that his forefathers had sinned. Listen, I don't know if there's, if it's, if there's a more relevant time than being in the midst of a global virus in which we should at least check our hearts. Are we saying, well, uh, God has caused the virus because, we're, because we sinned. I'll say this, the enemy can take advantage of our sin. That's for sure. 
But if we humble ourselves, think it's Second uh, Chronicles seven fourteen, one of the most popular verses of prayer. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their land. It's funny that the healing of the land is directly tied to the forgiveness of sin, and that's directly tied to the humility of prayer. So before we go on, it's great to have a strategy. But how many of you know, if you're, walk, if you're running against the wind, your strategy's not going to work? Sometimes I think in church, strategy is underemphasized. Other times in church, I think strategy is overemphasized. I think if we are going to disciple nations, <clears throat> and we're going to teach people everything that Jesus taught us, the first thing we do is we come to a place of prayer, and we say, Father, what, what's going on here? And we find this place of identificational repentance. And I think that before you can rebuild the walls of your city, you have to be, rebuild the foundation of your virtues and values. So, in my mind, we begin by saying, Lord, forgive us as fathers, brothers, sons, daughters, mothers, fathers. Forgive us for the sins of our nation. And you may say, I, I'm not doing any of those sins. Yes, but if we're going to be leaders in a country, we have to take ownership for things we didn't do. Yes. Part of being a leader is that I take responsibility for things that aren't my fault. Listen, if your son or daughter, you have a son or daughter and they throw a baseball through someone's window and they're 10 years old and your neighbor comes over and says, hey, your son threw a baseball through my window and almost hit my kid. It's like, I don't know what to tell you. It's not my fault. I mean, you know, it's not your fault, but if it's your child, it's your responsibility. I mean, one of the things that great leaders do is they take responsibility for things that aren't their fault. Are you with me? Okay, awesome. So Nehemiah confesses the sins of his forefathers. In chapter two, he comes to the king, he's, he's serving the king, and as a cupbearer, one of the rules of being a cupbearer is that you don't get to be sad in front of the king. And he's just so distraught that he can't hardly help it, and the king calls him out on it and says to him, what... What is this depression going on? Listen, you serve me, you act happy in my presence. <laughs> and Nehemiah says to him, how can I be happy when my, the place of my forefather's birth is burnt down, the walls, are burnt, the, the walls are torn down, the gates are burned with fire. And the king says to him, what would you have me do for you? So profound, he says, and I prayed to my God and I said to the king, I, I like this because... This is an instant, in, instance in which he doesn't say, I'll be back in three hours, let me get some fasting time in. He connects right there. You know that verse that says, pray without ceasing? And Nehemiah is always connected. His cell phone is always on. He always has cell. And he takes a moment right there, and, he's, and he's, you can imagine, I imagine this. He's like, Lord, what would you have me ask for the king? And the Lord says, tell him this and this and this. And it's a 20-second conversation, and it's the most powerful 20-second conversation he's ever had with God. And God says, tell him 
to send you back to restore the walls. And he says to the king, I'd like to go back. I'd like you to send me. I'll, I'll be back in whatever, however many days. I'll be back in six months. And the king says, you can go. And he says, can you send me with some letters? And, and I want to talk about that for a minute because <clears throat> there's a thing about authority that we've spoke of earlier that I'm very concerned about in, this, in, the, in the generation that I came up in and the, in and the inheritance of rebellion seems to be growing in our country. You only have as much authority as you submit to. He didn't tell the king, I'm leaving. He asked the king. How many of you know apostles, we've been teaching about apostles, so let me just use this to illustrate. The word apostle means sent one, but apostles have authority to send. They, they are, that you come into submission to their mission and you get commissioned. There's something in the spirit about being commissioned. You'll remember about, oh, I don't know, it's been months ago now, when I said to you, you can start your own business by just going, going to get a business license, but you can't start your own police department. We recognize natural authority. I mean, if I want to go to Harvard, I put an application in. I don't walk in and sit down in the classroom and go, paid my money, oh, here I am. I recognize that there are people at Harvard that have authority over Harvard. If I, if I, if I want to come to BSSM, I can put in an application, but I only get to come if I get chosen. I'm saying there are natural things that we just know that there, are, that there is authority in the natural that we obey. But it's interesting to me that, so, um, maybe I get ahead of myself. We've been trained to understand natural authority. Now, we may rebel against it. We may not like it. We may not like police. We may not like the mayor. We may not like the governor. But we recognize that there's a human, and I'm human, they're human, but we recognize Romans 13 tells us that God puts people in authority over other people, and we spend a whole session on that. The point I'm making is that there is natural authority and there is spiritual authority. The, we talked about spiritual authority when I talked about 1 Corinthians 11, where he talked about, where Paul is talking about women in Corinth being under authority and having a symbol of authority on their head for the sake of the angels. And we talked about how important it is to get angel help. We talked about um, in, in the book of Revelation that John the apostle was interacting with Jesus and Jesus told John to write a letter to the angels of seven churches. He didn't write a letter to seven churches. He wrote a letter to the angels of seven churches. And we talked about how apostles have angel help because they're in submission to a mission and so forth. So they get commissioned and they have, if you will, angelic help in the spirit. I don't know what happens when you're a rebel. Like someone like, what happens if I don't do this? And do I have angel help if I don't do this? And is God not going to help me if I don't do this? And I mean, God's merciful. God can do whatever he wants to do. But let's talk about the way we're designed. You know, if I smoke while I get cancer, I don't know if you'll get cancer. 
if you have smoked, but I know that you're not as likely to if you don't, <laughs> right? If I, if I don't take care of my body, am I gonna, is my life gonna be cut short? I'm not sure, but we all know that if you take care of your body, the likelihood of you living longer is greater. <laughs> and I'm saying, if, you know, can you claim angel protection when you live like hell and call on heaven? I don't know. You know, there's mercy and grace. And I can raise my hand to say before I knew the Lord, I had two angel encounters in which the Lord helped me. I wasn't walking with him, and he can do whatever he wants. So let me be clear. Like, I'm not making a rule like, hey, if you don't do this, God's not going to help you. I'm not saying that. I am saying that God has set up spiritual authority. <laughs> and that when you come into submission to the mission, you get commissioned and God gives us a pattern that there is actually angel help. Angels help people all through the Old Testament and all through the book of Acts. As a matter of fact, there was an almost as many angel visitations. Well, let me say it a different way. The word angel is mentioned just about 10 times or 12 times less, I wish I had the statistics in front of me right now, than the word Holy Spirit. I mean, you know, Holy Spirit is God. I'm not saying angels are as important as the Holy Spirit. Of course not. I'm saying that they were, in, they were referred to nearly as much as, as the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. And, and, and I, I asked this question, like, where have all the angels gone? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Like, I know lots of people say, I saw an angel. I saw an angel over you. And I'm like, that's good. I'm glad you've seen the Spirit. But how many times did people actually physically see angels in the Bible? Angels opened gates of, of jails, prisons. Angels shook the foundations of prisons. Angels protected people. And I mean, these weren't <coughs> just, you know, Josephine sees an angel. This was like people saw angels. I'm not discounting that seeing in the spirit is less. I'm simply saying, wouldn't it be nice for us to all see angels on assignment? So Nehemiah gets permission from the king. I think this is huge. You're leaving here, second year. Maybe some, many of you are going home. Many of you are watching from home. You're, you're, maybe you're going to go on to third year. But the point is, is that while you're in school, there's an authority structure already set up. It's kind of like you go to work and you know you have a boss, right? You may rebel against them, but you know who the authority is. You come to school and you, kind of, you have an RGP, you have some interns, you've got the leaders of the first and second year, you've got you know, Kathy and I and Dan and team, you've got Bill Johnson, you've got Eric and Candace, and so on and so forth. Like there's a structure. You may not like it, you may not like me, you may not like some of the folks that are over you, but the fact that you stayed in school this long means it's somehow you navigated authority. <laughs> now here's the question. What are you going to do when you leave here? Are you going to go or are you going to be sent? Now, let me, let me be clear. We have like 2,400 students. I'm not sure that we can send all 2,400 students like physically I send you to China, I send you to Guatemala, I send you to... listen. I understand that level of sending, right? And, and where you have a sense of covering, but you also have accountability, right? You don't just have covering like, I'm under Bill Johnson's apostolic call. 
But you also have accountability. Like someone's actually talking to you. Someone's actually going, so how's it going? What are you doing? You know, are you being responsible with the gifts? Uh, It's 1 Timothy to talk. It's Paul to Timothy. Hey, you got some gifts. What are you doing with them? Are you actually using them? You know, that, that's, a, that's another level that I'm talking about right now. What I'm talking about are, is, are you leaving here with a sense of submission? Are you going to find another place where you can blossom and bloom and bear ripe fruit? Do you, are you able to recognize that imperfect people have authority in the spirit? L- let me say that again. Can you follow someone who isn't perfect? Now, you know, let's be clear. I, I, I think you're second year students, so I probably shouldn't have to say this. I'm not talking about someone who abuses you, someone who sexually assaults you, someone who is oppressing you. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm just talking about humans who aren't perfect. I mean, how many times have you been offended in the two years that you've been here with my sense of humor? <laughs> I know it's been more than once because I get the letters. And you're like, Chris, why do you do that? I'm like, I don't know. Like, I don't know. I'd like to spiritualize it, but I bet it's just me. I'm saying you're not going to find a perfect person. Well, okay, Bill. Bill, very close, but not perfect. He gets authority from a king. I, I, I don't, I wish, I wish I had. That could be the whole message. He gets authority from a king. He gets kingly help. Did you notice that? He got letters. He got a letter from a king that gave him authority to take timbers from different nations that were good at timber and bring in some some people who could actually cut timber and send it to Jerusalem so he had wood for the walls. It, it, It speaks of that there is, if there is a sense of inheritance that comes from being under authority that you don't have if you're not. Okay, let's move on. He finally gets to Jerusalem. And I, this is the part that I, I think I'm good at this part. Like this is the part, like I would say first two chapters or chapter and a half, like I feel like Bill's great at this. This is, this is the part where I... I really learn from Bill, and I, and I follow. Like, he's the head goose. <laughs> head goose. And he's in front, and I'm following. I'm like, yeah, I, I, I know how to repeat this, and I learn this from watching someone who's good at it. Now, I feel like I'm, I'm pretty good at this part, and I want, I want to talk about it from chapter uh, 2, verse 11. And Nehemiah says, so I came to Jerusalem, and I was there three days. Is it, is it, by, is it just by chance that he's there three days? I, I don't know. Is it by chance that Nehemiah even mentions how many days he's there? Because, you know, the third day, there's something about the resurrection on the third day. And then on verse 12, I rose at night. Is it just by chance that he says, I rose at night? Or is he trying to make a point? Like it was on the third day, it was like on the day of resurrection and I rose in dark times. I don't know, I just like to see it like, I think that there's a metaphor there that on the third day, he rose in darkness. And he does this powerful thing, I don't know how much of this we'll read. I rose at night with a few men with me and I did not tell anyone what God had put, was putting in my mind to do for Jerusalem. Verse 13, so I went at night through the valley gate, and for the sake of time, 
We're not going to read the whole thing, but he goes around the wall with a few guys and he's literally, he literally has a scribe with him or he, or he writes. I, probably he writes because he's a, he's a cupbearer, so he's probably highly educated. And they're going from wall to wall, literally, literally from wall to wall, and they're making notes. Uh, the north gate by the, uh, the valley gate broke down. Um, and he's, just, he's actually just going from wall to wall you can imagine how these are, this is a whole wall around the whole entire wall of Jerusalem. This is not 10 minute surveys, it's probably 12, 20, 30 hours. And they're just making notes by the valley gate, by the dragon's well. And you can literally look, read the passage and you can see that he's figuring out where the most damage is and what actually needs to be done. And here's what he gets done. Verse uh, 17, verse 16, the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. Then I said to them, you see the bad situation we are in. I have that word we circled in my Bible. Do you see the bad situation we are in? And I spent, I think, an entire session talking about ownership being the key to leadership. Do you see the bad situation we are in? Now, how many know Nehemiah's not in a bad situation? He doesn't even live there. But he includes himself in their troubles. And he's basically saying what I prayed earlier. I am not the light at the end of the tunnel. I'm the light in the tunnel. I am with you in trouble. Do you see the bad situation we all are in? And I love this because Christians tend to live in denial and call it faith. <laughs> like, there's nothing wrong, everything's okay, there's no virus, there's no problem, everything's good, no, everything's, it's all going away, oh, it's going away, it's going to go away, oh, it's going to go away, oh, it's going to go away. And our, it seems like our only leadership value is it's going soon. <laughs> like, our hope is that it's going away soon. <laughs> Listen, I have the same thing. I'm with you. Like, how long is this going to last? But I, I'm saying, it feels like our only tool, is my point, is this is going to all end soon. You find someone that's going through trials, goes, oh, it's all going to end soon. And sometimes I think it's true, it's all going to end soon. And sometimes I think that it's out of our fear of not knowing what to do in trouble that our only weapon is, it's all going to end soon. And like, Nehemiah is like, hey, we're in bad trouble. I, I, I love this because he's a man full of faith. How do you know that? Because he can look at the problem and still have hope. If you can't actually survey the walls of your problem and still, full, fill, still be filled with faith, <laughs> say that fast, you don't actually have faith. Maybe I should say be filled with hope. If you can't balance your checkbook, have you ever been in a season where you're so broke you don't want to balance your checkbook? You're like, oh, I'm just too busy to balance my checkbook. Hey, when do you need to balance your checkbook? When you're broke. <laughs> Can I get an amen? Like if you have a lot of extra money, it's like, you know, there's no pressure to balance your checkbook. You know you got a positive balance. But when things are tight, you got to keep it balanced, right? When do you not want to look at your checkbook? When things are tight. <laughs> I'm saying part of... Being a great leader is, I have to look at the problem and admit I actually have a problem. 
I can't disciple nations with my eyes closed or by just throwing out candy to people. It's all going to be okay. How is it going to be okay? What's the plan? Are you with me? I got a room full of leaders in here today. We're in trouble. We have to admit, like, oh, we're all doing good with the virus. I don't want to live like this. Uh, maybe you do, but I don't want to live like this. And I'll tell you, more than me, like, I could live like this. Like, I have a nice piece of property. You all know. I got a pool. I got a wood shop. I mean, you know, God telling me to go to your room, it's all good. I, I, I'm really great. The challenge is that our city isn't, that our state isn't, our nation isn't. There's people out of work. There's people, businesses that they built for 15, 20 years that if they go another two months, they're not going to have a business. Everything that they work for for 20, 15, 10, 15, 20 years is going to be gone because they got no customers. So I'm saying, I can't pretend this is okay or this, we, and, and throwing some money at it isn't going to fix it. Verse 17, do you see the bad situation we're in? Jerusalem's desolate. Its gates are burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. And I told them, this is powerful right here. Okay, so here's the great balance. He just told them, dude, the situation sucks. It does. I just surveyed the wall. Here's my notes. We're in trouble. But look at the next section. I told them how the hand of my God was favorable to me and about the king's words that he'd spoken to me. He goes, situation's bad, but let me give you some testimonies. (laughs) And he enacts the testimony culture, doesn't he? Like, God is with us. Here's the favor on us. And by the way, the king, da-da-da. And that's why I'm here. And look at, their, look at their instant. Remember, these guys, 72 years have been trying to rebuild the walls. Can you imagine the real response that they could have had? This outsider thinks he knows what he's doing. He's not even a contractor. How the heck does he know we can rebuild walls? Guys, sipping suds in another nation in the palace and he wants to come here tell us how we're going to do it listen listen young man we've been doing this for 72 years don't come in here and try to tell us how we're going to fix our problem but instead there's something on nehemiah i would call it favor there's something on nehemiah and they say these 72 year people we're trying to, generations trying to rebuild this wall. It's never been done. 114 years broke down. Look at their immediate response. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me, the king's words, and they said, let us arise and build. And they put their hands to the good work. That's profound to me. There's something about the leadership mantle that's on you. When you... Submit to God. You make atonement, if you will, in your prayers for their past sins. You get the wind behind you. You, you, you come under authority. You ask for help. You with me? You, get, you survey the walls. You, you, you actually look at the problem. 
You are not afraid to make notes about how bad the issue is. And then you submit yourself to a nation and you say, you see, we got a problem. And here's, here's the problem, I, I, I wrote it all out. This is, this is the situation as I see it. But let me tell you, I've been sent here by the Lord and here's what happened, let me tell you how the Lord sent me here. And they go, we can do this. I mean, these people have failed for decades. They say, we can do this. I, I, I need to at least get to, the, I got 12 minutes only, but I need to at least get to the next part. It says, but, everybody say but. But when Sambalat the Horbite, that even sounds evil. Don't ever name your son a Horbite. And Tobiah the Amorite. It sounds like a disease that you should like get inoculated from, doesn't it? And Gershom the Arab heard it. They mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered them, said, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will rise and build. But you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. I, I just love this, to point this out. You know what's really hard in life? Sometimes you don't know if it's the Horabite that's against you or if it's God. Do you know what I mean? Like you go to do something good and all of a sudden you have all this resistance. And you're like, is God not in this? Right? Am I doing something that's not anointed? Because you know what? I was in the palace under the cloud of God. <laughs> Sipping suds with the king. Take a little taste of the wine. Everything was good. And all of a sudden I got a horabite against me. I got a Amorite against me. I got, a, I got enemies. Like, I must be doing something wrong. I'm being resisted. And I'd propose that when you get in your destiny, when you're doing something right, you'll be resisted. <laughs> and what I'm getting at is that you have to discern that you're in the right lane because you don't want to say, well, because I'm being resisted, I must be doing something right. You could be doing something stupid, right? Because God is opposed to the proud. And sometimes the opposition that we're calling the enemy, I think could be God. Like you're not submitted, you're rebellious, you're, you haven't prayed, you've got no permission from the king. And then we're like, oh, I must be doing something right. No, it's like, no, you're doing something wrong. In other words, you could be resisted because you're doing something wrong, and you could be resisted because you're doing something right. If you have no resistance at all, that's what I worry about you. Okay, 10 minutes, oh my goodness. Let's skip over to chapter four. <clears throat> this is, uh, I think, probably the best is to read this chapter. It came about when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall. He became very furious. You know, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. I mean, the author's trying to let you know he's like really, really angry. And he spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, How, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish it in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? 
Now Tobiah the Amorite was near him, and he said, even what they are building, the fox, if a fox should jump on it, the whole thing will break down. Hear, O God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in the land of captivity. Hopefully that's a little Old Testament there. Do not forgive their iniquity. That is definitely Old Testament. And let not their sin be blotted out before you. For they have demoralized the builders. Did you catch that part? They have demoralized the builders. This is why they couldn't finish the wall in 72 years. Not because they, had, they couldn't physically finish it, but because they were emotionally distressed. So, verse six. So they built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together um, to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Verse seven. Now when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Amorites, the Ashadites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem actually went on, and the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. And they all conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause a disturbance within it. Boy, I could spend the rest of the day on this, on this verse. Did you notice that the strategy changed? They went from opposing them from the outside to creating a conspiracy inside to get them to fight one another. They tried to destroy them by getting them to fight and argue against one another. And it goes on like this. Verse 9. But we prayed to our God, and because of them we set up a guard against them day and night. I hope that you're getting the spiritual uh, ramifications of that. The enemy's like, your wife you know what she was thinking about you? And then, and then the enemy's over in her ear. You know what he's thinking about you? He totally disrespects you. And he, the enemy is trying to get us. He's trying to divorce us. He's trying to get us to be against one another. But Nehemiah's smart, and he says, and I set up a guard against them day and night. How many of you know, when you have something against somebody, first of all, you go, you work it out, you forgive them. But from that begins, often begins the battle. Yeah. It's like, okay, I worked it out with my wife. I worked it out with my friend. I worked it out with my pastor. But now the enemy's in my ear. Oh, you know what he really thinks about you? Yeah, he said he forgave you, but he really didn't. And I have to set up a guard day and night if I'm going to finish, if I'm going to finish my assignment from the Lord. I have to guard my heart. Watch over your heart, Solomon wrote. With all diligence, for from your heart flow all the issues of life. I can't tell you how many times I've watched people get everything they finally need to metaphorically restore their walls and build their gates. Like they finally got the king's permission. They finally got all the stuff they need. They can actually accomplish this, but the whole thing burns down in a divorce. I'm not even talking about necessarily a, a marriage divorce, but... It's broken down in leadership. They don't get along. People can't walk together. They can't forgive one another. And here's this mega church or this mega ministry or this mega business that's out there for the kingdom and it implodes from the inside out. Not because the stock market crashed or because they lost the customers or because some natural thing happened. All the natural things worked great for them, but their relationships broke down from the inside out and they imploded. But Nehemiah set a guard over them. 
the people began to get afraid. Goodness, this takes longer. We prayed to our God. Verse 10. Thus in Judah it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there is much rubbish, and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. Our enemies said, they will not know it or see it until we come among them, and we kill them, and we put a stop to the work. When the Jews who lived near came and told us ten times, they're going to come up against us in every place where we turn. Then I stationed men in the lowest parts in the space beyond, behind the wall and the exposed places. And I stationed the people in families. Let me say that again. And I stationed the people in families with swords, spears, and bows. And when I saw their fear, I arose and I spoke to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people and I said, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your, house, and your houses. I, I, man, this, is, this, this deserves the whole session. Did you notice that Nehemiah made it personal? It's not about a wall anymore. He took a wall and he said, when you put bricks down, you are fighting for your family. <laughs> when you lay a brick, you are fighting for your family. When you put up a gate, you are warring for your family. And he says, Here's what I want you to do. Put a brick up in the name of your family. Add a wall in the name of your children. And he began to tie their physical work to their spiritual inheritance. And he's like, you're not building a wall. You're, you're extending a legacy. Wow. When they tied the finishing of their wall to the restoration of their family, they finished the wall in 52 days. What couldn't be done in 72 years, they did in 52 days. How did he do it? All those things we talked about. But here's the last point we'll have time for today. He tied it to the restoration of their family. And he said, what you're doing is a legacy. Remember your family. I love this part. Verse 21 so we carried out the work with half of them holding spears from dawn until the stars appeared. At that time, I also said to the people, let each of us with his servants spend the night within Jerusalem so that we may be a guard for us by night and labor by day. So neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us removed our clothes and each of us took his weapon even to the water. Oh my goodness, such a powerful statement. Such a great way to end this, the, my last session. Wow. Nehemiah didn't say, you know, I'm the leader here. I'll take a shower, be in my tent eating some filet mignon. He's like, I didn't take my clothes off for weeks. Neither did my servants or the guards. In other words, I love what Bill Johnson said to me years ago. If you want people to bleed, you better hemorrhage. You don't call the people to sacrifice and then stand in your palace and direct them from the palace. How many understand? You got a picture of Nehemiah. He's wearing old clothes too. He's the boss. He's got a spear everywhere he goes. He's taking some of the night watches. Did you notice that? He's not just directing people. He is an example of leadership because he's in the trenches. He's not yelling 
orders from some castle somewhere. This is part of great leadership. And obviously there are times to separate yourself for a season. I get that. I understand that David, as he got older, the men said, David, you, you are a commander. We'll go into battle and you direct us. I get that. But there's got to be an attitude of inclusion. I have to be with my women, with my men, with my soldiers. I have to be in the trenches. I can't yell orders from some safe place and not enter into the battle and call myself a leader. This is all part of leadership. I really, I want to give you some homework. I, I don't think I've given you much homework all year that I remember, but I'm old, so I could have given you homework last week. But I'd like you to read all the way to chapter six, because I, I, I wanted to get to chapter six, because I feel like you need to see the climax of the rebuilding of the walls, which is in chapter six, where they finally finished the walls. But also there's some great principles in there where Sam Bellet uh, comes back and he begins to accuse Nehemiah. And I love Nehemiah's response. It said, and this is what Nehemiah says, and I'll give, you the, I'll give you the overview, but I really want you to read chapter five and chapter six. Nehemiah says, said, I realized that they were just trying to make me afraid. Listen to this. So that the work would stop and I would sin against my God. I want you to read it because he says, stopping my assignment is sinning against God. And here is his response to, to Sanballat and Tobiah. I'm doing a great work for God. Come on. I'm doing a great work for God and I don't got time to talk to you. You know, part of the reason why the enemy's voice is so loud in our lives, we're freaking doing nothing for God. I can't say I'm doing a great work for God because when I get home from school, I do nothing. When I get home from work, I do nothing. I mean, I don't, there's, and by the way, I'm not being accusational. I'm simply saying part of our confidence is that I'm actually doing something great for God. And you may say, all I'm doing is babysitting, but are you doing it for God? If you're doing it for God, you're not just babysitting, you're raising up young warriors. You're pouring into young people. Maybe you're a mom with two or three or four kids and you're like, I'm a stay-at-home mom, I I can't wait and I'm doing something for the Lord. Are you kidding me? You're doing the most important job for the Lord. Psalms 127, you're raising up warriors who are arrows in the hands of warriors. This is what you're doing. I'm saying, tie what you're doing to your assignment and you actually have courage. Some of us are doing great things for God and we're the only ones who doesn't know it. <laughs> Let me say that again. Some of us are doing great things for God and we're the only ones who don't know it. But let me say that laziness, oh, okay. I'm not being accusational and everyone in this room has been lazy before. I, would, I have too, so let's, I'm, not, I'm including myself. But laziness puts us in a place where the enemy has access to us. Laziness will open the door to access from an enemy. When God has called you to an assignment, remember what James says? James says, it's if he who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. How many understand, and when you're a noble royal priest, the sins I deal with, like, I'm not dealing with like, boy, I'm watching porn. No, the sins I have to watch out for is, am I in my assignment? When I know the right thing to do, how I many you know I'm called to a higher level? I'm not dealing with like, 
I, I, I shouldn't be, let me say, I shouldn't be dealing with bad attitudes, sin, sin, <laughs> sin issues, sin habits, you know, sexualizing women, whatever, lying. I, those aren't the sins that should be in my life as a man that's 50 years old in the Lord. My, the things I struggle with is, am I doing my assignment with vigor, <laughs> with zeal? Am I going after the things God told me to? Nehemiah said, he, he said, I saw that Tobiah was trying to get me to stop the work so I would sin against God and not finish my assignment. How many understand that sin is also when God tells you to do something and you don't finish it? And I'm really not trying to talk about sin today. I'm really talking about like, do you have an assignment? No, I don't. Well, submit to someone else's until you get your own. Find a place to serve. Wake up every morning and be able to say to Tobiah and Sam Bella, I actually can't talk to you today. Kind of busy working for God. If you don't have that, find it. And by the way, when you graduate, find it again. Let's stand. I want to pray for you. Lord, I'm thankful that we've been called to a time when the walls of our nations are broken down and our gates are burned with fire. That literally we have moral failure, but in front of us we see all around us that there are physical issues, financial problems, health issues right in front of us. And Lord, the world has run for cover, and yet you have said to us, it's time for you to rise at night. It's time for you to rise in darkness. And yet, Lord, we find ourselves sometimes feeling ill-equipped or don't know what to do. We're not sure how to move forward. And we find ourselves afraid as much as our neighbors. And Lord, I pray today that you would give us courage, that you would give us a divine strategy from heaven, that you would help us help others. And that we could say, as Nehemiah did, I'm doing a great work for God. I really don't have time to talk to the devil right now. I'm just too busy. Lord, I pray that we would so be about our assignment that we wouldn't have time to even consider the fact that we are unable. Lord, I bless this class as being one of the finest class, classes in our 21-year history. And I pray that as they go to their God-given assignment, that they would succeed. They would be like Joshua's and Esther's. They'd be like Mordecai's and they'd be like Nehemiah's and Joseph's, Paul's and Peter's. Lord, we, we pray, God, that you, would, that you would help them to complete their assignment before they exit the earth. They would fight the good fight. They would finish the race. I bless each one of them in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. If you want to find out more, read my blog or listen to the previous podcast episodes. Go to chrisvelleton.com. Have an awesome day.